Behind the noise with Adam Bornstein. Behind the noise, behind the noise. Episode 7. This is Adam. It's Monday, April 19th. A few days after my last podcast in March, my family and I had a rather sudden departure from Ethiopia, and we uh, found ourselves heading to the airport with our dog and a few bags in tow. The uh, airlines in Ethiopia and around the world were obviously canceling routes, and uh, the departure window was narrowing. So we found ourselves on a flight headed back to the U.S. and specifically to New York via Cote d'Ivoire. The, uh, the route wasn't without some excitement, to say the least. Uh, along the way, we had to make an unscheduled uh, emergency stop in Togo because a helicopter had crashed on the runway just in front of us as we were about to touch down in Cote d'Ivoire. This sort of added an uh, extra five to six hours to our flight, and in the cargo bay was our dog, Bahar, who has a pretty good flight resume. I think she's been on... 10 different flights since we first found her in Mongolia. But in this case, it was hot in the cargo bay and we were flying um, an airline not known for a great record with animals. So when we actually landed in Togo, I jumped off the plane and uh, climbed into the cargo bay to look for our dog. And it just so happened to be the case that she wasn't there and it took I would say five minutes for me to uh, move bags and and actually find her cage. And uh, when I made some air for her and gave her some water and some biscuits, took her for a walk onto the tarmac and uh, waved at some of the passengers who were definitely wondering what was going on uh, with that picture, put her back in the cage, made some space and hopped on the flight. So we arrived in New York City around 3 a.m. We went, got our, our rental and drove for another four hours home. So that was a pretty interesting arrival here in the States uh, and then straight into quarantine for the next two weeks. And uh, since then, we've been doing this Airbnb quarantine sofa surf classic, I think is what I'm calling it these days. We're now in our third house and uh, we'll be here for a couple more weeks until we have to kind of look for something else. But as a lot of uh, individuals are mobile and displaced around the world, I, I like to say at least we have a credit card and uh, we're definitely one of the luckier ones, luckier families. So with that, let's get into this week's podcast, which is featuring Tom McCormack, who is Ethiopia country representative for the uh, Mennonite Economic Development Agency, or META which is a international economic development organization focused on uh, creating business opportunities and solutions uh, for vulnerable communities since the uh, early 50s. One of the programs that Tom manages is called the uh, Ethiopian Motivating Enterprises to Rise in Trade and Agribusiness Project. It's a mouthful, but essentially what they're doing is increasing sustainable employment and income generating opportunities for women in the Amhara region of Ethiopia. Tom's also the co-founder of the Addis Ababa Homebrew Association, a uh, platform that looks to develop value chains and source locally grown material used in making beer in Ethiopia, working specifically with smallhold farmers. So the reason you know I do these podcasts is to create a opportunity and room for new ideas to surface that may lead to some counterintuitive solutions facing these different communities that that we work with and the different types of organizations that support them. And going forward, we're not entirely sure, for example, what the status quo of the world that we live in today. And therefore, I think we really need to push the bounds of creativity. So over the next 40 plus minutes, Tom and I are going to discuss where his passion for beer came from um, this multi-billion dollar value chain that supports this beer industry, the development case around entrepreneurial small hold farmers, and uh, a need to really completely 
unpack and rethink aid and assistance in this development and humanitarian context, especially because the world is more fluid and um, dynamic and unpredictable than really ever before. Join us as we get to the heart of the issues and get behind the noise. The Danish Red Cross's award-winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24-7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable, and ecosystem-driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation. So today's show is about beer and specifically value chain behind beer in a international development and humanitarian context, which may not be obvious at first. But to help us link this up, I'm excited to have Tom McCormack, one of my good friends from Ethiopia and the individual who taught me how to brew beer on our show. So Tom, welcome. Hi, good. Nice to talk to you. So, Tom, can you tell us where you happen to be since leaving Ethiopia? Where are you and the family uh, based right now? Uh, I am uh, at uh, the home of one of my family members in Eatonton, Georgia, about an hour and 45 minutes east of Atlanta. So you guys getting along okay? Yeah, we're hanging in there. My wife and daughter and I are here together, which... um, despite the circumstances for, for being together actually is really nice for us. Uh, we're a, we're a tiny little family of three people. So we were missing each other terribly as our daughter was off at college. Uh, now that, now that college has sort of been suspended almost everywhere, it's, we, we get a chance to live together again. So for me and my wife, it's actually been kind of nice, but, uh, you know, despite the, the, the odd circumstances. Yeah. So the reason why I wanted to talk to you was a little, little bit about beer and yeah. and how beer might fit into a uh, development context in some of the world, some of the, the countries that you've worked in in the past. Um, you're one of the founders of the Addis Ababa Homebrew Association, uh, <laughs> but it all started before then. And uh, maybe you could walk us through a little bit about about how you got where you are and, and some of those experiences. Right. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Homebrewing is something that I started a long time ago. Um, I haven't been a brewer consistently for, for all those past years, but kind of off and on in different places where we've lived. I've actually found it a bit of a, a lifesaver as far as just having something fun to do, like on the weekends and in my free time and all of that. I, I like creating little things. I like to work in the garden and cook and, you know, and, and beer making has been kind of a, a fun part of that, that non-work side of, of my life for, for a long time. I, um, I first got into this um, oddly when uh, I had been in an accident. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa and got banged up in a motorcycle accident. So I came home to the States. And uh, while I was uh, convalescing, I was living in Maine with uh, my sister, Mary, and her husband, Randy. So it was just the three of us together in, in sort of the, the cold, snowy confines of, of uh, Rockland, Maine. And one day, Randy and I were out in his truck when I could get out and move around a little bit, I guess. We drove past the place that said the Purple Foot. And he goes, well, that's a funny name for a business, you know? So we stopped and uh, Purple Foot, of course, being the connection to, you know, stomping wine grapes. We, we went into this place and both of us fell in love with the idea that if we just invested a few bucks, we could take home some equipment and some just basic supplies to, uh, to make our own beer at home. So we started doing that together. And, uh, and really, that was just the start of this whole thing for me. Um, after what kind of supplies were that like what are well, we talking at about back like, then, you know back then, yeah back then um you know it, it for home brewers there certainly was a lot less available on the market and the quality of what you could buy was a lot lower than it is now i can say that today you know the, the way that they uh, what what they make available to home brewers the amount and variety of stuff that you can get now and the quality the packaging the availability 
all of that is much better now than it was back then. But back in the day, you could get just some simple um, extracts um, in cans. They, they had hops available, although not many varieties. Uh, you could pick out your own yeast, but typically you would use the yeast provided with, with you know, one of the cans of the kits. And so it was real just sort of rudimentary, but, you know, the idea that you could make your own Irish stout or your own, you know, English bitter, something like that at home, we, we thought was fascinating. And so we bought a few of these things, brought them to the house and just started to experiment. What year was this about? That was, yeah, 1987, which was, um, no, 1988, which was about, if I'm not mistaken, about 10 years after homebrewing became more or less legal in many places in the United States. Um, You know, state by state, I think the laws kind of varied as to, you know, how legal this was considered uh, making, you know, your own uh, stuff at home. And um, I, as of about the late 1970s, I want to say 1978, state by state, you could find, you know, state contexts where they would start to sell this kind of stuff and, and make these things available. And you could make up to X number of gallons, you know, per year or something at home. And so anyway, we, we yeah, we started doing this. And then I left for graduate school about um, nine months after staying with my sister and brother-in-law in Maine and started a little brewing club at uh, our graduate school in Monterey, California. And that was a lot of fun. It was a bit different from most of the little clubs that we had at our school. And we had a small but very dedicated group of, of uh men and women, uh, students who would come over to somebody's house on the weekend, we'd do up a batch. And um, we, you know, from from uh, money that was collected by the school, supporting uh, clubs or societies was one thing the school was supposed to do. So all you had to do is make an application. If your club looked legitimate, I think ours was kind of borderline legitimate, but we, uh, we, we applied for funding from the school. And so we were able to get all of our stuff uh, paid for by, by our graduate school, which was quite nice. So, you know, we had all the, the ingredients and equipment and whatever that you could possibly want, you know, for a small group of six or eight people. And we made beer for, um, yeah, the next couple of years and would bring these, uh, these beers to um, school events typically graduation, different types of, of parties and things that they'd have. And we would uh, we'd bring this stuff and, and have tastings. And people thought that was really kind of very different and new and kind of fun. And because at my graduate school, we had so many international students, they really got a kick out of the fact that we were making our own Czech style lager, you know, at home and bringing it and giving it to them. I remember a Belgian guy was loving the fact that we were making some really strong, rich Belgian beers and things like that. So anyway, that went over very big. Um, were you uh, sourcing any uh, material locally or was it just stuff that you guys were buying from shops? No, we, we, we got uh, our stuff um, on, well, I, not online because we didn't have the internet up and running so much by then. But this was um, just by phone-in orders. There, there was a place in Northern California. I think it was out of Redding, California, if I remember that um, was a well-known supplier and they would ship stuff all over the United States and uh, yeah, would ship that stuff. And, and within, you know, I'd, I'd call them up and with, by the end of the week, certainly we would have whatever we needed to, to make a batch. And so we would start to buy things in bulk, you know, like a, a 50 pound sack of dry malt and, and, you know, hops in, in, you know, several ounces at a time and stuff like that. So we were pretty well set up to, to make a lot of beer. And, and we did uh, over the course of a couple of years. It was, it was good fun. And, and uh, the university, were you studying uh, language and development economics and such? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I got a degree in something called the International Public Administration um, and uh, took a couple semesters of German and a couple semesters of French, as, as does everyone at that school. You, everybody takes a foreign language. And um, yeah, so the, you know, the, the kids, the other students that I made beer with were studying international policy studies or, um, oh, we, we had an anti-nuclear uh, 
proliferation studies. Um, we had some people that were doing international business and things like that. So did you ever think that uh, at one point in your life that you might be taking home brewing internationally and maybe <laughs> talk a little bit about what you're doing today and, and how that kind of perhaps could weave into some of this? Well, well, oddly, yeah, I was thinking, you know, I, I, I would love to be able to work overseas again. And because I had had one little taste of living overseas in the Peace Corps, you know, I thought, um, geez, this might be great. I didn't know much about the development world that I, I work in now at that time. Um, but yeah, once I was able to get into a couple of jobs and get some opportunities to go overseas, um, I realized that it's not difficult really uh, to source some stuff, especially when you're back in North America, throw the stuff in your bag. It's perfectly legitimate. I mean, you know, the hops look like hashish and that kind of thing, but the, uh, yeah, the ingredients were, were not difficult to, to bring overseas. And so, yeah, I started doing that in a couple different countries, a bit in Central Asia and Tajikistan, um, did a lot of brewing in Mali uh, for the five years that I was there. I uh, have brewed now in, in Ethiopia for a few years. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. And it's also really, uh, you know, nice to be able to go to an event, go to a dinner or something like that and bring a few bottles of something that you've made and give them out to people. And, and then of course you're terribly flattered if, if people actually like the beer that you made, you know? Yeah. So um, today you want to, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing today and, in, in, in Ethiopia and a little bit about yeah yeah well I, I work for a Canadian organization um, doing economic development work uh, primarily focused on women I've uh, been there now in Ethiopia doing that particular job for almost four years uh, six years total in Ethiopia and um, yeah we um, we have a project that is assisting thousands of, of um, clients and partners in Amhara region, which is about an hour's flight north of Addis Ababa. And uh, I've got a team of 45 people that I work with. Um, we focus on assisting small business people who are working in three sectors, rice, vegetables, and gemstones, those three things. And um, thinking about the, the value chain of Ethiopia specifically and the type of crops mm -hmm. that they're growing, um, is there anything in, in the mix there that, that might be supportive of a, uh, of a beer industry? Well, you know, Ethiopia is different from the, from the majority of, of the continent in that uh, it's a highlands area. Um, you can grow things um, in Ethiopia because it's cooler and higher altitude than most of the countries that tend to be hotter, drier and lower down than Ethiopia. So yeah, Ethiopia has opportunities, I think, um, for producing some grains that typically you might find in places like Europe, Northern Europe. Uh, barley is one of those. And um, I know that some brewing companies, Heineken and others have recognized the potential of Ethiopia and um, have been testing a number of, of different varieties of barley especially in places up in the northern part of the country. Um, you know, each, each crop that you grow, I, and I'm not an agronomist, but I just know that, you know, crops uh, develop naturally to be suited to the, um, you know, the, the, the environmental um, sort of realities of the place that, that the crop is living in, right? So the number of hours of light in a day, temperature, water, that kind of thing. I, I know that uh, in the case of, of Ethiopia, a few companies have been looking at um, the fact that at least temperature wise um, and with availability of water and that kind of thing, there's a good chance that a wider variety of grains can be grown in Ethiopia than were traditionally grown there, right? So I know that uh, barley, um, including barley that's, that's quite suitable for making beer, uh, has been growing in a few different parts of the country and, uh, and with some success. And of course, it's much cheaper to, to be able to raise this grain locally if you can produce it at the same quality or the kind of brewing quality that you need to make commercially 
um, you know, acceptable beer than trying to bring it in imported. And um, that's been, they've had some success with that, which is exciting. Um, so what, now, what makes a, a, a barley um, more valuable for brewing industry versus not? Like what are the components or what are the characteristics that you might look for? Yeah, well, one thing I think uh, that, that people have realized over, over time, and this is over centuries of just experimenting and playing with different types of grains is that some are really nicely suited to certain purposes versus others. People have brewed with every kind of conceivable grain out there at one time or another, right? Now, barley um, is, is a grain that uh, people have discovered over the past few hundred years in particular lends itself very nicely to uh, the flavor of beer, color of beer, and also uh, yields the kind of sugar that can be fermented into alcohol, making a nice mix. Uh, some other grains like, uh, like corn, rice, those kinds of things, you could also say the same, but they won't give you the same flavor profile. They might give a different sort of uh, alcohol level. And the, the, uh, the flavors are not what we would associate with, with you know, tasty, high-quality beer. And so barley has been kind of settled on as one of the favored uh, grains for brewing, uh, beer brewing. But there are other things, adjuncts and other types of, of grains that have been put into beer, which give different characteristics. Although barley is almost always the base grain that, you know, the majority of what you'll use to brew will be made up of barley with other things, possibly like oats, corn, rice, uh, wheat added but usually in smaller percentages. Barley, barley has kind of been settled on for those different characteristics when taken together make for a really nice drink. And so I think people have realized this, especially since maybe, uh, oh, let's say probably the 14 or 1500s and has been picked out as kind of the, the favorite grain. Um, that said, there are many different kinds of barley, just like lots of varieties of plants. There are some kinds of barley that also within that family of plants are better than others. So some varieties have really shown themselves to be high producing, high potential for, uh, you know, flavor, and they give a very nice yield for the amount of effort you have to go into to, uh, to produce the barley. Mm -hmm. So while in Ethiopia, have you ever attempted to source some barley and, and try and brew with it? And if you have, what's the process of just taking the raw barley and putting that into the into the beer? Maybe you can walk us through that that process, your experience. Right. Yes. Yes, yeah. I have. I've, I've done this, I think, three or four times now. Um, I'm a bit of an amateur at this, I must say. I, I found that out by uh, by the doing of it. <laughs> I, I've got kind of a very basic rudimentary process for, uh, for doing this. Um, but what you can do is, um, first of all, try to uh, find a, a barley variety that is grown specifically for beer, right? I, I know that in northern Ethiopia, in, in northern Amhara region, where, I, where my project is based, uh, they are growing a variety that is meant to be suitable for beer. Um, I have tried um, to, uh, to work with, with that, with some batches of that, as well as some other stuff that I've just found on the street, which I know to be barley, but I don't know the, the specific variety. And I've had very mixed results. Um, the stuff from, from the north obviously is uh, uh, much more suitable for beer than the, the, the barley that I buy off the street. Um, both of them can yield sugar that, uh, you know, and some flavor profile that can be good for beer. But the one that, that really is, is meant to be more suitable proved to be much better. And uh, yeah, the... Um, you know, the, the process for, for using grain um, really is um, a multi-stage or multi-step thing. You, you really can't take the barley and just throw it into water and expect to make beer from it. The grain has to go through some different development stages to be able to yield 
the kind of chemicals that will turn into alcohol and, and end up in a product that you would recognize as beer. Um, one of those uh, steps is called malting. The idea being that um, the, the grains typically are starchy by nature. So when you get this stuff that's just been harvested, typically it gets harvested, dried. And then if it's going to be turned into beer, um, usually what the brewer does is uh, steep those grains at a set temperature for a set period of time. And it allows the, the grains to sprout just like they might if they were thrown onto the ground and given the opportunity to sprout and grow into a new barley plant. Um, you, you usually alternate steeping the, uh, the grains in water with taking them off of the water for a certain number of hours each time like this. So, so sort of in, in stages of dry, wet, dry, wet. And that gives the, uh, the grains a chance to breathe. They need a little bit of air during this process. And you'll see if you do this over the, the course of um, maybe three, four days, that those grains will start to sprout. Okay, the little growing part of the uh, um, <clears throat> of each of the grains, when it gets to about the length of the grain, maybe a little bit shorter, that means that the transformation, the chemical process inside the grain is starting to happen where it's turning that grain into something you can actually use to make beer. And, uh, and once it's gotten to a certain point of growth, now you want to cut that off. And uh, now those, those grains, in, in very basic terms, those grains have gone from being very starchy to being more sugary, okay? And, uh, and that process that happens uh, triggers enzymes in, in the, the grain to start to turn this into something that can nourish a new plant that's growing, or at least that's my understanding. Once that happens, you dry the grain out again, okay? That has those little sprouts, those, those little uh, rootlets, okay? Acrospires, they're called. Once you do that, you dry the grain out again, and now you grind it and you can have it as what we would picture as uh, something that's appropriate for making beer. When you actually use that grain, okay, that, uh, that malted grain, uh, which is the term for, for having the grain that's gone through that transformation process. It's been malted, um, and you'll hear the term malt barley, okay? Once that has happened, now you're able to grind that grain, mix it with water. You have to hold the water at a certain temperature, and, and if you do that for about an hour, maybe 90 minutes, it will finish that final transformation process where what you get out of the grain in the end can be turned into beer. So it's, a, it's kind of a multi-stage process. I did this at home where I was, uh, I had a big um, metal container. I'd put the, the grain in there, I'd soak it in water overnight. I would take the water off in the morning, let it sit there and dry a little bit and breathe, put the water on again at night. I would do this for three, four days until I saw that the sprouting looked appropriate. I dried it in the sun on a big plastic sheet until it, you know, for two days or so until it got nice and dry and then ground it up and was able to use it for beer. And yeah, I did this in Ethiopia. It was a very kind of a crude process compared to what they're able to do in a factory for, you know, a commercial scale, but it worked and it was fun to have, you know, uh, some beer that, that is, you know, a hundred percent Ethiopian or, or at least that grain was was grown locally, and yeah, it worked. So um, once you have the the once you have the the sugar protein going through there, you're making the the wort the the beer that hasn't actually become fermented yet, and 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 uh, with some kind of alcohol content, um, it's pretty sweet. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering, for example, like in Ethiopia. Uh, is there any way to get some kind of bittering agent or is that something you have to import? I'm just thinking like from a value chain perspective, like what is used today? Because I think Ethiopians have something called Tela, which is kind of a local beer ish yeah. type, type thing, but maybe just walk us through a little bit from that value chain perspective, uh, right. know, locally sourced if you can. Right. You know, traditionally when people would, would experiment with different grains, including, you know, barley being, being part of that, 
I think they realized that, you know, the process they were using maybe was a little bit rough. This might have been two, three hundred years ago, for example. And so people would put all kinds of different things into beer, trying to add flavors that that would be a nice flavor combination with whatever they were using as a base grain. Right. So people would use coriander. They would use rose hips. They'd use all kinds of stuff, wormwood. They would throw all these things in, hoping to find something that, that made a nice complement to the grain that they were using, right, to make, uh, to make an alcoholic drink. Um, people started to um, hit upon hops, okay? Um, this probably happened, um, I'm, I'm guessing, in, in probably in Europe, I want to say what's now Czech Republic, Germany, places like that. People started experimenting with hops. And saying, oh, wow, you know, yes, this, this beer that we make, the, the grain adds a sweet, sugary component to the beer. Uh, that sugar is, is what ferments in the beer, but it was without something to balance that sweetness. The beer can be a little cloying. It can take, taste a little kind of one-dimensional. People started to see that when they would add these other things, especially these hops, they said, oh, wow, this stuff is nice. It's, it makes a very nice flavor profile. And so that's why we have hops today as kind of the standard addition to beer to balance the sweetness of the grain. Um, in Ethiopia, yeah, they, they have a product called Tala. It's, it's, a, it's something that people know how to make at home. Um, it can be fairly good. It can also be really rough and <laughs> difficult. But uh, they have a plant in to Ethiopia. To say it mildly, right? To say it mildly. Yeah, they, they've, got a, they've got a plant in Ethiopia called Gesho, which um, is just a leaf. It's a little bush. And people have been harvesting those, the, the leaves of this bush for a long time and using that as the bittering agent for Tala. Um, Ethiop to, to the degree where Ethiopians refer to Gesho as hops. It's not really hops. But, um, but it has a very similar flavor, and it's used as, as that counterbalance to the, the sweetness of beer. Um, hops have been so accepted as a standard ingredient in beer for hundreds of years now that the hop industry is actually a really important component of, of beer making. And anybody who's going to make beer, of course, has to understand where he's going to source uh, hops, what kind of hops, how much, et cetera, to, to be able to make a well-balanced beer. Mm -hmm. um, hops, uh, to, my, to my knowledge, have not been grown successfully at any scale in Ethiopia. I don't know about uh, whether this has been attempted sort of commercially or not. Now, again, going back to kind of the, the, the growing conditions needed for all kinds of plants. I'm not aware of whether hops could be grown at that latitude and at that altitude and so forth versus the other known places in the world where hops do well, which are the, the mid latitudes, right? So why do you think that is? Like, what is it about the, the you know, the Seattle's and, you know, yeah. Germany? Yeah, yeah. What is it about that? Yeah, there, it's, it's just true, and, and this is true for wine grapes and everything else. There are just certain places where that plant, which had naturally you know, adapted itself to growing well in certain natural conditions of, of light, humidity, pests, um, you know, the, the length of day, which can matter tremendously, etc., some plants, that's why sometimes if you take a seed or a plant from one place, you bring it to another, you put it there and go, oh, this, this thing grew great in Ethiopia. Here, let me try it in Germany. You plant it and you see that it, it, it dies, it does terribly, it gets attacked by pests and whatever. It's because that plant naturally had adapted itself to the conditions of Ethiopia, right? Likewise, I don't know about the hops that, that right now do quite well in those zones of let's say 45 50 55 degrees north and south of the equator i don't know if they would do well at the latitudes that you find in ethiopia and the altitude uh and and other things like pests and and disease and so forth um i i, I do know that the grain can do okay i do know that this barley is doing all right whether hops can be grown there especially on a larger scale or not 
or whether it would be worth the investment for a brewer to try that. I don't know, but it's a fascinating question because that means if you had the hops locally available, you could, you know, those are two of the most important pieces in brewing, the grain plus the hops. Mm -hmm. um, the other elements, the, you know, the other things that you put in are water and yeast, right? Mm -hmm. Water you can find virtually everywhere. Yeast is very easy to transport. You don't need a huge amount of it. Yeah. Grain, that's not true. Grain is heavy, bulky, and expensive to move, move around. So if you mm -hmm. can produce it locally, much better. Yeah, the, the thing about hops, which is, I think, interesting in Ethiopia, was what some of the tariffs were. I think we did a little research on some of the tariffs for mm. for for what they call hops, right? And I think yeah. there was basically no no tariff at all on exporting the hops. But I think that was the gay show That's that gay they show, were discussing. Yeah. yeah, the thing is, like, when you look at coffee as, like, one ounce of coffee, the retail value is basically, like, six cents or five cents U.S., Whereas mm -hmm. an ounce of hops is anywhere from like, you know, six to eight dollars for some, you know, for the Citra, the Armarilla, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now I know we experimented trying to grow um, hops in Ethiopia and we got a couple, we got a couple flowers, but then these little green, green animals started eating away and the mosquitoes. So, you know, you yeah. might be right about that, but. You know, aphids, if there, aphid infestations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there is a case for that, that'd be really interesting. So I'm wondering, um, you know, from a developmental context, if you think about, you know, the materials that are needed for for beer, um, are there any countries in Africa that you've been to or that you know of that actually might be a pretty interesting place to to, to try and, and look at this? And this is more from like a developmental perspective as opposed to from like a pure commercial yeah, you can distinguish well, too. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not an agronomist. I, I can't speak to the science of this very well. I'm just going on what I've seen in other living, growing things around the world, and, and trying to understand why one plant does really well in one place and does really poorly in another. I know that some of those base conditions that you have to, to at least have some sensitivity to or understanding of, definitely could, could play a role, such as the length of day, you know, the amount of light needed by, by growing plants. I, I know that people who do gardens in a place like Alaska, very far north, right? At the peak of the season in June, maybe July like this, their plants grow, you know, if, if you're growing zucchinis and things like that, their plants will grow tremendously fast, faster than they would maybe down in the lower 48 because they're getting so much sunlight, right? They get virtually no sunlight the rest of the year, at least for you know half the year. So those kinds of conditions play a big role. I, I would be interested to know about a place like South Africa, for example. They've got highland conditions, um, you know, like in the Drakensberg Mountains, but they also have the, uh, the the lower latitude that maybe could you know lend itself to um, the kind of conditions that hops need to do well. They do very well in places like New Zealand, right? Um, likewise, in the Northern Hemisphere, there are a handful of places that are really well known for, for hop production, including Czech Republic, Germany, parts of England, uh, like you mentioned, parts of, of uh, Washington, Oregon, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the, but what they have in common in the Southern Hemisphere, they would tend to have in common with those places in the Northern Hemisphere latitude, length of growing day, and so forth during the height of the season. So I, I get the feeling that some there are some conditions that you, you probably need to have for that plant absolutely to thrive. You might be able to do something strange and get it to grow in a place that's not traditional for that plant. But, but I get the feeling that to grow these things on a, on a larger scale, you might need to find conditions that mimic those of other places where hops are successful. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if South Africa might be one of those. Mm -hmm. um, they have the cool conditions in some places. Uh, they, they have the latitude. Um, you know, they, they also happen to have the, the science and, and kind of the, the agribusiness support that you might need um, that's lacking in a lot of other places in Africa just due to poverty. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I would I would wonder about a place like that as a possibility because, um, you know, they're able to have a really thriving, beautiful um, 
wine industry in South Africa, right? Mm -hmm. And the people that plant, you know, the, the French Huguenots that first brought those cuttings to, uh, you know, South Africa, they knew what it took, what kinds of conditions you would look for, soil, climate, water, all that stuff. And they selected areas that they thought, gee, this, this reminds us of where we moved from in France, you know, mm -hmm. uh, looking for chalky, you know, you know, soils and that whole thing. And, uh, you know, they've got a beautiful wine industry in South Africa now. So anyway, uh, it's, it's a really interesting question. It would not surprise me if in a place like South Africa, you might find that combination of conditions that, that would lend themselves to people being able to grow hops. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and, and there might even be, you know, some beginning of a, an industry there right now, although I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So um, as we... Right now, we're obviously in a pandemic and lots of things are changing in the world. Right. Eventually, there's going to be a recovery. And yep. I think some places are looking at that right now. Um, Africa, because you and I had just spent a lot of time there and you've mm -hmm. spent much more than I have, you know, is going through a bit of this uh, pandemic and kind of the slide economically, but also the locus on, on, in Eastern Africa. I'm wondering, you know, what does it look like for Africa at this point from an agricultural perspective, from like a, uh, feeding individuals and, and kind of a sustainability? Um, you know, what do you think the, the future is over the next three to four to five years? Right. Well, yeah, it's true. You know, there are, uh, there are some things happening right now um, in East Africa that are really troubling. And, Yes, even even the effects, the economic effects of this uh, this COVID nineteen, are going to be felt across the continent. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, that can be compounded or even worsened by periodic uh, problems that that are predictable. Um, you don't know when they're going to happen, but you know that they will happen, like locust infestations, like drought, you know, extreme weather. Um, events and so forth, which are coming more and more frequently in Africa. Um, this, this could be global climate change, could be all kinds of things, but we know that these things are happening more and more. Um, one, one problem that we've got on the continent that, you know, it, I think is mirrored by virtually every place in the world is that we have many, many more mouths to feed than we did decades ago. So, you know, the, it seems to me like the margin for for you know being able to air when when these you know these negative situations set in is less and less because people are going to get hit hard uh, by things like this. I mean, we we look at the economic slowdown in a place like the United States. Well, people lose their jobs. They go through tough times. Maybe they lose their savings. They you know they they really fall on tough times. In Africa people live on such narrow margins of, of survival that, you know, among the poorer people on the continent, uh, they, they have very little capacity to cope with, um, with, with these downturns. And so, you know, when, when the things like this do happen or when there's a natural disaster, when there's floods, drought, you know, insects, et cetera, um, you know, many people's ability to shift gears and do something different or have the resources to be able to do something different or do what they do currently in a better way is less. And, uh, and, and it, it makes things tough. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the human impact now is, you know, we, we have the potential for um, troubling things like COVID-19 to impact many millions more people than it would have, you know, 50 or 75 years ago in Africa, simply because of the mouths that we have to feed. With that said, though, there are reasons for optimism. Uh, worldwide, the, uh, the, the incidence of poverty, people living in abject poverty, et cetera, as a percentage of the population is lower now than it's ever been. That's very encouraging. However, the absolute numbers of people who live on very little are huge. And so we, we've got different ways of looking at this, different dynamics. But yes, um, you know, that, that's part of what keeps me interested in development is just knowing that 
many, many people live on a little tiny razor's edge of survival. And if there's something that pushes them off that edge, it doesn't have to take much sometimes for people to find themselves in really dire straits. And so yeah. that's from a development perspective, that's kind of how I see these things. Right. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today about beer and, and barley and hops is because it's from the perspective that, that we work in, in the, in the areas that we work in, you know, these things in, in, impact our work in terms of the sustainability and resilience of individuals mm-hmm. and innovation, thinking of new ways that we can maybe work with drought resistant barley or other types of um, cash crops and, and how to make communities more um, resilient and to give agency to individuals on the ground in these vulnerable communities, I think it's kind of like the goal. And so, you know, it may not be um, obvious, but perhaps barley is something that you can look at and, and maybe hops is one thing to look at. But are there any kind of other innovations or any other um uh, commodities that you've been investigating or exploring that might kind of tip the scale a bit in that direction to allow these communities that are so vulnerable and and uh, prone to frequent um, climate and uh, environmental um, impact that, you know, you've said, wow, maybe we have to scale this up or maybe we have to explore this a bit more. Yeah, I mean, yes, the, the, the short answer is yes. Um... There are a couple of different things that give me um, hope for the future. One definitely is science. I I think that that is one way of looking at, you know, given what people are able to do. I mean, people, as you know, from being in Africa, people are very industrious. They work very hard, sometimes on just a little scrap of land that they've got in the back. And, you know, but even with those, those meager resources, they're still able to get by. If I, had to, if I had to live off that little tiny scrap of land, I'd have no idea how to do it. And here in a place like Ethiopia, we've got tens of millions of people who do that every day, right? So, but one thing that does give me encouragement is that, you know, knowing that this smallholder, you know, postage stamp farming probably is not a way of feeding large populations going into the future. Um, I think that, that, you know, scientific breakthroughs and, you know, improvements in helping people just be successful given the, the resources and, you know, the limited resources that they have, I think can make a huge difference. You mentioned one of them, um, you know, improved crops, improved crop varieties. Whereas, you know, somebody who, who sees a, a 20% downturn in uh, precipitation might, that might mean a catastrophic failure, crop failure for someone, right? If you've got a more drought resistant variety that you can plant, whether it's sorghum, maize, whatever it is that you grow on your farm, um, if that can make the difference in survivability for that, that plant, it can make the entire difference in that farmer's life and his family's life. So those kinds of breakthroughs I think are, are crucial some of that has to do with uh, resistance to pests. You know, as, as the weather continues to change, I think it places us in all kinds of dilemmas that maybe we didn't see 20, 50 years ago um, as, as far as, you know, new challenges that people have. There are insects and, and you know, molds, viruses, um, you know, all kinds of things that are attacking agriculture now that, that I think people didn't even dream of two, two generations ago. And some of this is, is due to the, the weather changing. And um, so, yes, I think science is part of that. I think that, um, that governments, growers, um, you know, thought institutions like, like uh, universities and, and research houses and people like that coming together to discuss what are the right ways to provide for food security in countries that have big populations, have a lot of people out of work, um, you know, who's, who, for whom the reality is changing very quickly. But, you know, maybe the, these are traditional societies where people aren't used to this rapid pace of change. You know, you and I might have grown up on, on little farms somewhere but the chance that our kids are going to be smallholder farmers is zero, right? 
um, if you're in a traditional setting in, in a place like uh, rural Africa. So, you know, the, the, I, I think there are just a lot of realities that, that are facing a place like Africa today that we have to look more on the, uh, the societal, uh, the governmental, and, uh, uh, you know, level to see what makes best sense for the large number of people that, that we have to support in a society. And current ways and practices sometimes simply are, are not adequate. And I, I think people realize that but making the change is not always easy, right? Yeah. My, one, of my, one of my biggest fears is that in the meantime, you know, um, as populations grow, as there's more and more pressure put on, on us as societies, especially when you see things like this pandemic come on board, um, I, I, I think that there, you know, you, you see fragility being exposed. And my fear is that otherwise stable societies are more and more going to, to see civil unrest and things like this as people become unsure about their futures and about how to provide for their families. So I, I think that we have to look at diversity. Um, we have to look at, at science. I think we have to look at good governance and good management practices and what makes best sense for large numbers of people at a go yeah, and find solutions that maybe are not practiced today and maybe are not the kind of the accepted norm because, you know, we're living in a, we, we're living with realities now that we, I, I think we've, we are unprecedented, that we simply have never seen before. Right. The climate changing definitely is one of those. And, uh, you know, larger populations than we've ever had on the face of the earth. That's another one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, the decline of the natural environment around us and, and scarcer and scarcer resources for more and more people. These are things we can't escape. We can't run from this stuff. It's true. It's real. Right. And, so, and so taken together, I think we have to come up with some solutions that make sense for large numbers of people. I had to give you one last uh, question or, or just want to push you a little bit more on this uh, to find something that might be more practical um, actionable. If you had access to say five or $10 million right now, is there something on the top of your head that you might push as a platform to address issues? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one thing I really like is the idea of diversity. You know, that we have a lot of monocropping. If, if we're looking at agriculture, for example, right? Um, I like um, diversity. I like the idea that to the extent that we, we don't focus on just one answer, I think that helps. I think that educating people and working with uh, trialing uh, different food types and trialing different things to, to find adaptability and suitability in a local area for uh, vegetables, grain crops, animals, that kind of thing. I love the idea of that. Because I think that, uh, you, know, you know, in the United States, for example, we put, you know, all of our maize resources into something like 94% of the maize or the corn that's grown in this country comes from just a couple of varieties. Is that a good idea? You know, um, same with soybeans and so forth. We, we have huge tracks of monocropping in the United States. I've never been sold on the idea that that makes sense. It might make some economic sense, but for humans, I'm not sold on that. So for a place like Africa, I like the idea that we look at diversity and promoting diversity. Um, I think promoting systems, farming systems, not just farmers, but farming systems that can support better production. And, you know, and sometimes that means larger, mechanized, et cetera. I know that's not popular. Uh, for smallholder farmers, but, you know, using technology that was around 3,000 years ago probably is not a recipe for the future either, especially when we're talking about feeding 100 million people in a place like Ethiopia. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that I would like to, to focus on. I love the idea of uh, people who are able to do research and do research from a kind of a human-based uh, viewpoint, not just, you know, kind of large agribusinesses that are mostly interested in producing, 
you know, better, better strains of, of food because they'll be able to make more money from it. Um, that, that in itself, I think, is, is limited. I think we have to look at this more from kind of a human perspective and say, we're all in this together, and I don't want my neighbor going hungry, you know? Um, if, if, if I had, yeah, your $10 million, that's the kind of thing that I would invest it in. And um, what do you think humanitarian organizations like the Red Cross you know, how do you think they play a role in this and, and, and where, does, where do they come in at what point? Yeah, I, I think one thing that nonprofit organizations uh, do really well is um, I, I think that they're able to provide um, uh, an, an ear. I think they can listen. I think they're interested in working at the community level and understanding what community needs look like and trying to develop solutions that can be oriented toward real people and not toward political imperatives or toward, you know, kind of uh, other, other motives that maybe are not the best for people. I, I think that a lot of NGOs do have that in their heart and their soul that, you know, we're in this to try to help people. So that's one thing I like about NGOs. Um, I think that NGOs also can bridge the gap between, um, you know, the voices of people on the ground in, in rural communities, let's say, and decision makers and others who are higher up and perhaps don't have that local perspective. I think that's one thing NGOs can do. Uh, they, they bring uh, the ability to speak to these issues and be respected on some level. They can advocate, they can get others, they can rally others to, uh, to certain causes and so forth. Um, I think NGOs are action-oriented for the most part. In other words, they know that they're there to get something done, not just simply talk, right? And so I, I think because of that, the role of NGO, NGOs definitely have a role. Government definitely has a role too, it, but I think it's a somewhat different role. And I think that they, you know, all, all of these different participants playing their part is the way to get something moving and, and get something done. Um, you know, when, when I hear people criticize government, I say, well, I, I think sometimes your criticism is misplaced. Government is great at certain things, and they do things that other institutions are not designed to do, right? Um, similarly, I, I think that's true for, for nonprofit organizations, and I think that they definitely have their own niche and their own, uh, or their own niche, as my daughter would correct me to say. They, they, we, I think that they've got their, their role, and, uh, and I think in, in many cases they're quite good at that. And it's, uh, it's the type of work that not everybody can do. And, uh, and for, for, that per, for that reason, I, I, I think that, uh, that they can be quite effective and, and sometimes indispensable. Mm -hmm. Great. Tom, it's been a little, a little bit longer than I, I promised, but uh, it's always interesting listening to you and, and learning a lot. So I appreciate your insights and uh, I really appreciate the time you, you took today to talk to us. Oh, thanks, Adam. No, and, and as you know, I'm always happy to talk about something like beer. Um, <laughs> you, know, it, you, you had also just touched on the idea, is this the kind of thing that, that you know, maybe people could be interested in? We're looking at diversifying, we're looking at doing different, and we're, we're looking at filling gaps and needs. Yes, it is. This and perhaps a thousand other things that, that equally could be interesting and, uh, and enrich people's lives. Why not? Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes we have to look outside our, our normal lives to things that are perhaps hobbies and things that we're passionate about to actually find real solutions. And it may not necessarily be hops or it may not be barley. Mm -hmm. But there are, you know, aspects of that that feed into it that, that may give us inspiration and ideas for something else. And I think that's what a lot of what we're doing is about, to be honest. With yeah. You. And, and, you know, there's there something like um, uh, 1.3 million people making beer at home in the United States now. I, I'm quite sure that when I started this back in the 1980s, that was not true. So. You know, yeah, you're right. I, I, you know, this this is something that for one person is just uh, something to giggle about. It's a hobby. It's a little bit of fun. For someone else, it's a, it's a big business that that actually is quite serious and and you know is is that person's livelihood. And then we have everything in between. You know. 
and, and not and not to sort of uh, sideline the fact that you know World Bank and other development agencies pour a lot of money into local brewers. At least when I was with the World Bank um, and the IFC, they were investing heavily in these type of businesses because they one created jobs, but used local value chains, mm-hmm. and actually they're kind of cash rich. Um, it doesn't necessarily sit well always with humanitarian side. Of it. But in some ways, resilience and livelihood and recovery is about, you know, going where demand is and, and finding resources that are local as opposed to trying to import. Because when you th- think of places like Zimbabwe with their currency, there's no way they can import anything right now. Because inflation and yeah. the devaluation is just it's impossible. That's right. So we have to find local solutions. And sometimes they're slightly um, unorthodox. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. It's been great chatting with you. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Nice to talk to you. Behind the noise with Adam Bornstein. Behind the noise, behind the noise.